at the beginning of the, the big jump, we had devised a plan to reuse the piers from, from the former highway that crossed the Providence River uh, between downtown and the city's east side, save the piers, use them for a new pedestrian and bike bridge, which is now open, and a uh, really amazing way to reuse highway infrastructure, right? Uh, and create this beautiful place. It's a, you know, it's a very well visited and loved part of our city now, but it's also a really important safe connection for people walking and people biking from downtown to the east side of the city. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, July 23rd, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm excited to share this conversation I recently had with Martina Haggerty, Director of Special Projects in the Planning Department for the City of Providence, Rhode Island, New England's third most populous city and one of the oldest on the continent, having been founded in 1636. And it's one of the original 13 colonies. It's pretty ironic and tragic that one of the oldest cities in North America found itself at the end of the 20th century left with automobile-centric roadway designs, divided by interstates, and exposed to dangerous speeding, leaving many of its residents locked into restrained mobility options of car dependency. As you'll soon learn from Martina, the city is turning back the hands of time, reorienting to the human scale, and transforming their streets to accommodate people of all ages and abilities, walking, cycling, and even scooting. For a location that started the 21st century with virtually no cycling infrastructure on the ground, and at best only a nascent culture of activity bubbling up, this was going to be a huge leap of faith. So it's perhaps apt that they were chosen back in 2017 to be one of the 10 People for Bikes Big Jump Cities. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And if you're in a position to help, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. However, if making a contribution is not in the cards right now, no worries. I completely understand. But you're not off the hook. Seriously, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help me out by telling everyone you know that they should also tune in. A bit much? Uh, Okay, how about a friend or two that you think might also enjoy and appreciate this content? In any case, thank you so very much for tuning in and for whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. And don't forget to subscribe to, follow, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform as this helps to connect others to this content. Thanks. Okay, time to get this conversation with Martina Haggerty rolling. Martina, it's so wonderful to have you on the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to, to see you, at least uh, on the screen. It's been, I don't know, probably two years since I've seen you live and in person. So Yes, yes. So it was definitely a pre-pandemic. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, gosh, it must have been some at some point in uh, 2019. 
and maybe it was maybe it was in Boulder, Colorado for one of the uh, the, the recent more recent uh, excursions with people for bikes. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, it may have been. That sounds sounds about right. Okay, well, let's have you introduce yourself to the audience. Who is Martina, and uh, how in the heck did you get involved in and passionate about this kind of stuff? So um, I, I'm a mom. I'm also the director of special projects for the city's planning department here in Providence, Rhode Island. I, I don't know how I ended up doing this, to be honest. You know, it's kind of one of those things like you think like this is not like I didn't didn't go to college thinking I want to do transportation planning for a living. I don't think most people do. I, I didn't even know what it was. Um, I got my undergrad degree in architecture and that was sort of my gateway into this world a little bit. You know, I kind of felt like architecture was never quite enough. You know, it was really, it was about the buildings and about the built form, but it really wasn't about the streets or the cities or the people. And that was the part of architecture that always intrigues me. And so from there, I uh, went and got my master's degree in urban design and worked at, for a consulting firm in Boston for a few years. And then I ended up working for the city of Providence. I think it was 12 or 13 years ago. And I have been here ever since. Uh, and I've been really fortunate while I've been here to work on a pretty wide variety of things. Uh, started out working um, on our comprehensive planning and neighborhood planning efforts here in the city. Led a rewrite of our zoning ordinance, which you know dated back to the 1950s. So that was a gem, uh, as you can imagine. And um, do a lot of other things like environmental planning. But uh, back in about 2015 or so, uh, I was tasked with overseeing the city. City's Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Commission. Uh, they had been around for a few years at that time, but, you know, it was sort of, it, at the time, it felt like it was, um, we were just checking a box. Yeah, we have one of those commissions. They're over there. And a lot of folks that were on the commission at the time were, were really upset. They felt like their voices weren't being heard. They were wasting their time. And I was sort of tasked with figuring out, okay, figure out why these people are so upset with us and then fix it. And that and that was how I got into the world of active transportation planning. And uh, it's been a great ride since then. Okay. So that was about 2015. And I'm assuming this commission was uh, probably community members who were volunteering and, and were either either self-selected or appointed to the commission. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. I think that uh, they were established by executive order through our previous mayor in 2012 or so, about a five-person volunteer group. And, you know, it's when you uh, you put your time into volunteering for something like that, it's understandable that you expect there to be results, that you're not wasting your time and your voice. And I think we've come a long way since then. We've issued another executive order that requires all of our road construction projects to go before this commission now. Uh, so it's a tool really for us to use the volunteers on that commission to help make projects better, but also a way for us to make the decision-making process for a lot of these projects more transparent and public whereas before it was done behind closed doors. So, you know, it's we still have a long way to go, but I think uh, that commission has come quite a long way since 2015. So for those of us who haven't had the the, the honor and privilege of, of, you know, visiting you there in Providence, Rhode Island, yet I will yeah, be there, you, I promise. Yeah, John, we're waiting for you. <laughs> Why don't you describe it? What's the city like? What's the lay of the land in, in relationship to 
you know, th- this commission and these, you know, the frustrations that you, you sort of alluded to, what's the setting? Why the frustration? Well, so Providence is a coastal city, historic New England city, very small, very dense. Um, we only have about 180,000 people in the city, uh, but we're only 18 square miles. So we're, we're packed in there pretty tight. And uh, like a lot of other historic New England cities, we have very tight streets, which is great for walkability and bikeability. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously over the years, the city tried to become more suburban. Post-World War II, like a lot of other cities, folks were f- fleeing cities and moving out to suburbs. And cities like Providence thought, well, the only way to get folks back is to become like the suburbs. And so we really undid a lot of the things that make historic New England cities so great that people love about them and became very auto-centric with the way we were using our streets and the way we were laying out our land uses. And because the streets are so tight, you know, on top of that, there's a lot of competing needs for those streets. We're not some of the newer sort of Southwestern cities that have grand wide streets where you can fit in a lot of these things. We're much like a lot of smaller European cities where, you know, you have a a set street, you have historic buildings on either side. Uh, The street has been widened a little bit over time to accommodate more auto-centric type of uses on the street. But now, you know, you're trying to fit in things like bus lanes, bike lanes, bike share parking stations, on-street parking, uh, Uber and Lyft drop-off zones, uh, protected bike lanes, wide sidewalks, outdoor dining now more than ever, especially uh, post-COVID. You know, and there's just a lot of stuff we're trying to cram in there and it creates a lot of pressures. And, you know, you sort of have all these different interest groups that want the street solely for them. You know, you have we have uh, folks that are advocates for better pedestrian access. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's at odds with things like bikes or, or cars, of course. Um, but then, you know, you have our transit agency that wants bus lanes because we want to make bus service more attractive. Um, and then you have, you know, the typical folks who think, well, cities were built for cars and are trying to cram all that in there. I think I was listening to uh, one of your previous podcasts pretty recently um, with the fellow from Salt Lake City. And I, I, I laughed to myself when, when you all were having that same conversation of these streets were built for cars. And like, no, Providence was built or established in 1636. It was it was not built for cars. I can guarantee you, um, you know, we we did that to ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that that's such a fascinating concept. I mean, gosh, it, just 18 square miles. So you had mentioned the suburban context and uh, your challenges are quite different from, you know, like you mentioned Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. from an area that is incredibly spread out, uh, a very, very large footprint. You have the opposite challenge of a very, very small footprint where, you invited in the, the the automobile to the point where it became sort of a, an insidious, you know, drag on the vitality and vibrancy of the city, and so it, it, that's it, it's that's a challenge, right? You know, because you you've adapted what was a historic, very very compact city and shoehorned in the automobile, and now trying to tease the automobile out so that it's not as dominant 
as it has become, you know, based on that 19, probably 1940s, 1950s vision of this is how we're going to remake the city. Uh, now trying to undo some of that, which really reminds me a little bit of some of the things that we saw like in, in Rotterdam where, you know, <laughs> they rebuilt after World War II based on the automobile, you know, model. And then, you know, later, you know, a couple few decades later, we're like, ooh, ouch, uh, redo. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And I, yeah, it was um, being, uh, being in the Netherlands, you know, it was, it was so interesting to see that because, you know, I'm sure you've heard this a lot too. It's like, oh, they're different. People bike there because it, they've always biked. No, and it's, it, you know, that was something that I learned, you know, shortly before our trip over there. And, um, you know, it's every person I've talked to about that is like, what? Um, but yeah, that's true. And it's a, a great lesson for uh, U.S. cities that are sort of starting to go through that process much more slowly than I think a lot of us would like to see, but of, of undoing that damage of some of those past decisions that we've made. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the timeline. So 2015, you started uh, overseeing the commission. Right around, I guess, 2017, the big jump cities were announced, and uh, and obviously Providence was one of the 10 uh, people for bikes, places for bikes, big jump cities. Uh, talk a little bit about that original vision from back there of of that big jump initiative, and then bring us up to date as to to where we're at on you know some of the uh, well where we're at currently, as well as some of the the challenges that that you y'all experienced over that four year period. Yeah, and I think that's how we met too, was through the big yeah. jump at one of the Places for Bikes conferences a few years ago. So in uh, around 2016, our current mayor, Mayor Alorza, um, came into office and he was very, very clear uh, in his mandate that you know, we were going to rethink our city streets. He says this a lot at uh, press events. Uh, he says cities for far too long, we've built our cities around cars and it's time for us to start building a city around people. And for us as planners, what more empowering statement could you make? It was, you know, like hitting hitting the, the go button for us. We're like, all right, uh, game on. And, you know, to have that political backing, though, really makes a world of a difference in what you do. And so the Big Jump initiative through People for Bikes came along where they were looking at selecting 10 or so U.S. cities to really um, accelerate what they were doing in terms of uh, planning for for bikes, uh, both in terms of culture and infrastructure. And we thought, you know, hey, let's do this. Uh, so we approached the administration about it and they said, yeah, let's do it. And, um, you know, it's been a crazy ride since then. We're still partnering with people for bikes, however many years later. And uh, we've just been so fortunate to have that that assistance there and that peer network more than anything else of the other cities that are going through the same sort of growing pains we are and being able to learn from each other and vent to each other has been uh, such a valuable part of that initiative. You know, a, a lot of the challenges that we had going into that haven't gone away. Uh, we've, we've learned how to work around them in a better way. But, you know, certainly even though we had the, the backing of the mayor's office, there's still a lot of political pushback to these kinds of changes. Anytime you make a change to a city street, as many folks who listen to this probably know well, you know, there's 
people freak out any kind of change small whether it's, it's something very small or we're talking about really big changes and completely redoing the way people use our streets there was a lot of uh, learning that we had to do to figure out how to confront that and how to convince political leaders both at the, the local level and at the state level that this was something that a lot of people actually did want even though you know you they might not be the people standing in the front row screaming at you at a public meeting uh, you know this was something that a lot of people wanted to see and it was going to be popular it wasn't going to cost them their their elected office and so we've spent just a, a lot of time dealing with that a lot of time trying to um, figure out how to harness the voice of the community, of the folks that do want to see these changes. You know, so often we hear like, oh, people in our neighborhood don't bike. They might bike, those college kids on the other side of town might bike, but we don't bike here. And so we had to do a lot of work on the ground, and we're still doing that, of talking to community leaders and talking to community members and uh, really showcasing those folks who live in the neighborhoods and want these changes and proving that these changes are for them. These changes aren't for other folks. We're not trying to gentrify neighborhoods or encourage displacement. Um, that was, that's been a huge issue here in Providence is uh, um, conversations around bikes and gentrification. Mm -hmm. So how has it manifested in, uh, you know, projects completed as well as projects in the works and future projects what's what are some of the the, the actual stuff that you're, you're hoping to see on the ground so um, as we went through this process with with the big jump one of our first goals was to create a great streets master plan we really didn't have anything we had an old bike plan that really was created within the mindset of a vehicular cyclist someone that is comfortable biking in the road with cars that are going very fast. And so we really had to start from scratch there and create that master plan because a lot of the pushback we were also getting was like, well, what's the vision? Why a bike lane on this street? You know, wh why not that street? And so we worked with the community. We created the master plan. We finished that in 2019 or early 2020. And that really enabled us to then leapfrog and move forward with some of the infrastructure investments in our streets. So this summer, uh, we're gonna see about 20 miles that are about to break ground any day now. A lot of that is two-way protected uh, bike lanes on major arterials. We're kind of calling that the backbone of our network. Along with that, we're doing about 12 miles of neighborhood greenways on residential, fairly low speed streets. So there it's, it's really a lot of just, you know, wayfinding signage and traffic calming and those kinds of things. But we, there's, there's just a, so much that has happened over the last few years and that's about to happen over this year and next year. Um, it's gonna be real, a really profound change for a lot of our neighborhoods. We have 25 neighborhoods in the city and I'd say probably only about four of those neighborhoods have access to all ages and abilities streets or network or part of the parts of the network and the rest of our neighborhoods unless you have a car have a bike rack or are very adventurous uh you aren't able to access our bike network and rhode island um has this really amazing off-road network of shared use paths that radiate out from the city of providence but they don't come into the city and they don't connect to each other 
And so for us, it was about connecting that network to our neighborhoods so that people could get to work or school or to the park or to cultural institutions to visit local businesses, but also so that they could get out and enjoy the shared use paths and the trails that lead out of the city. I mean, they're, they're really stunningly beautiful. I highly recommend checking out some things like the East Bay Bike Path. If you ever get out here, John will take you out or the Washington Secondary Trail. We just have these amazing trails and um, to open up that, that access to everyone, no matter uh, whether they have a car or not, is, is going to be a huge change for a lot of folks. And given the fact that it's such a compact area, my, my sense is that the distances aren't that great. I mean, it's, it's very bikeable to get to those. It is. It's, it's very bikeable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have, um, we're a pretty hilly city. So, you know, there's, there's some s- steep areas. And so we had to figure out a way to work around that. But in terms of distance, you're right. I mean, when you compare it to other larger cities like Los Angeles, what the distance we're talking about here is, is almost nothing. Right. Um, and so once we make those those streets uh, safe for people of all ages and abilities, it's really going to be a game changer. So the actual master plan was named the Great Streets Master Plan. Is that That's correct? right. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that. Rather than calling calling it a bicycle network master plan or a pedestrian bike ped master plan, I love that you named it Great Streets. Well, and that was you know that was part of our thinking behind this of broadening it out. We're not just talking about bikes here. I think, you know, when you're when you're just talking about bikes, that that's fine, but you're you're limiting yourself. And here we were trying to create a broader network of folks that were interested in changing the streets for a variety of reasons, whether it was from a transit perspective or a walkability perspective or bikeability. Um, and our our tagline was, you know, that every street should be a great street. A street in one of our wealthier neighborhood and more affluent neighborhoods shouldn't be treated, designed, or maintained any differently than a street in one of our frontline communities. And that was the, certainly wasn't the case for, for many, many, many decades. And um, that was what we were trying to change. Yeah. Now, do I remember correctly that there was some sort of like signature uh, multi-use path or, or, or off-street trail or something like that that was going to be connecting a, a park or some major institution, uh, public, uh, cultural institution? Did I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So we've got two projects that are about to go under construction. Uh, one is on Broad Street in South Providence, which is one of our more diverse areas of the city. And that is a major arterial road. It's our, we call it the Latino cultural corridor for the city. It's really diverse and very auto-centric. It's one of our wider streets. We don't have a lot of those. I certainly don't think it's wide by most U.S. city standards, but for us, it's, it's pretty wide. And um, it used to have streetcar tracks in it. And when they pulled out all of the, the city streetcar network, they didn't know at the time what to do with such a wide street. And so they put in a really wide center turn lane throughout the whole street that really isn't necessary and is contributes to a lot of speeding and just unsafe behaviors on the roadway. It's a really... It, it's providing us with this really great way to uh, reuse that space, reclaim it for people. We're going to be putting in a two-way protected bike lane later this summer, along with a lot of pedestrian safety improvements, bus islands to help speed up bus service on this really important corridor. And it's going to tie two of our largest parks to one another. Uh, It's going to tie Roger Williams Park, which is on the, the very southern end of the city, 
all the way to India Point Park on our east side, right through uh, downtown. And uh, it's we're going right through an area called the 195 Redevelopment Area where we had just, just a few years ago, finished relocating a highway, shifting it over, opening up over 20 acres of development right in the heart of downtown. And this bike network is going to go right through the center of it uh, across our new beautiful pedestrian and bicycle bridge that was just built on the old piers of Interstate 195. And um, so that's that's one project. And then we have another project uh, sort of in the northwest area of the city along the Wunasquatucket River Greenway, uh, which is one of our regional bike trails. And it's going to connect uh, the neighborhood of Olneyville through uh, sort of a former industrial area known as the Wunasquatucket Corridor right into our downtown. And it's going to tie into our Riverwalk system. Uh, right in in downtown, which folks who are familiar with Providence might know that area for water fire, which is another awesome thing. If you're ever in Providence, you have to be sure to check that out. But but then you can start to see the network sort of building out from there. Those are really the two main projects coming in from the Northwest and coming in from the South that are going to start to tie everything together. Yeah. Am I also remembering correctly that you, are there some major interstates or freeways that sort of split the city? Yeah, so I mean, one of those was was Interstate 195 that went right through the middle of our downtown and separated downtown really into two parts. And so at the beginning of the, the big jump, we had just finished moving that highway, opening up all that land for redevelopment. We had devised a plan to reuse the piers from, from the former highway that crossed the Providence River. Uh, between downtown and the city's east side, save the piers, use them for a new pedestrian and bike bridge, which is now open, and a really amazing way to reuse highway infrastructure, right, Uh, and create this beautiful place. It's, you know, it's a very well-visited and loved part of our city now, but it's also a really important, safe connection for people walking and people biking from downtown to the east side of the city. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I was envisioning is that it became a critical connector uh, of the community, whereas before it was there was a it was a barrier. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it's kind of funny. Providence is, is really good at doing these kinds of projects where we say we're, we're very small but mighty. You know, that was so we finished that project a few years ago. Um, the decades prior to that, we had spent working on the northern end of downtown, relocating a series of railroad tracks and uncovering the Providence River, which divided the northern part of downtown. And so this this area known as Capital Center, we created a beautiful new park, Water Place Park, opened up a ton of land for redevelopments and and most importantly, uncovered the river. Uh, it was it was decked over for, for roads and parking. Uh, and now it's this amazing asset that ties together the northern part of the city. So, you know, we're we're crafty, I think, with <laughs> with figuring out ways to to reclaim some of those um, old auto centric type places and uh, making them for people again. Well, and I think it's it's wonderful to point out that you have as a city have already accomplished in stitching back together your community. And these are the themes that many cities across North America and even around the world 
are, are dealing with. They're, they're dealing with, uh, you know, whatever type of barrier it is. And in, in many cases, it's these uh, interstates that ran through the middle of cities and, and oftentimes creating a, a cultural divide. And, and, you know, the fact that you guys were able to uh, achieve this, I, I think it's it's worth telling that story and and, and really celebrating the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, you you've been working on this for decades, and so uh, that's that's great to hear, and it's also wonderful to see too that as part of this new vision, now that you have this great streets master plan in place, you know, 2019, 2020, and starting to to move forward with reimagining the streets and you know, tr- trying to recast the city as a city for people is, it, it just all fits together. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a really exciting moment to be, to be working here in Providence, uh, where we're, we're finally seeing some of the change that's been in the works for so long, uh, taking place. You know, it's one of the things as a planner, you don't often get to see your, your, your vision built out. You're, you're planning for 20 years, 30 years in the future, but, um, we're, we're finally at that point where the, the changes are happening. Yeah. Now, and you mentioned that it's a little bit hilly there, and you also mentioned cultural shift uh, that needed to take place. And if I remember right, um, at the beginning of the big jump, y'all didn't have much in the way of on-street bicycle infrastructure and bike lanes, correct? Correct. Barely anything. Uh, We had um, two major thoroughfares that had uh, traditional striped bike lanes on them. Uh, We had the great shared use path network outside of the city that was really it there there wasn't much uh on the streets uh certainly weren't any protected bike lanes so that was like entering a whole new world of getting people used to what these were why we were building them why they were safer and why they would help create this cultural shift so there's been a bit of a learning process there, I think, for, for everyone. I mean, we completely had to rethink our maintenance of it, too, uh, with having uh, snow here. You know, we have to think about snow removal with our protected bike lanes. And uh, it was just a completely new world for us. But I think we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. And I like to remind folks, too, that especially with these older cities where you've got some uh, historical uh, narrow streets and a historical grid in place, uh, many of the most pleasant places to ride, as well as walk, for that matter, are in some of these, uh, you know, quieter residential areas, uh, most likely some of the, the neighborhoods where you're going to be having these 12 additional neighborhood greenways, uh, you, know, you know, put into place. And and I do try to remind folks that even like the, the world-class cycle network that the Dutch have in place, 70% of their, their network is actually, you know, considered shared space. You know, it's the feet struts, it's the, the woo nerfs and the, you know, bicycle advisory uh, types of facilities that are in place, especially in those residential areas. And so it's not necessarily, you know, only about 30% of their network are the protected separated infrastructure. That's what gets all the news and the headlines, (laughs) of course, but really it's the traffic calmed, quiet streets that are, are quite comfortable to, to, to be able to walk and, and bike and you know share space with cars. But in order for that to have happen is we have to have that traffic calming. We have to have that reduction in motor vehicle speeds. So I'm assuming that that's part of, of what this whole mix is going to be. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our neighborhood greenways, you know, once we get the the sort of backbone set up of some of these protected bike lanes on our major streets, the neighborhood greenways uh, are really the fingers reaching out into the neighborhoods and traffic calming. It's one, one of those really great ways that we're bringing everything together on the neighborhood greenways because you're, you're getting uh, reduced speeding by cars on a lot of these side streets. They're becoming more intuitive and comfortable for people on bikes, but they're also great for the, the people that live in the neighborhoods, for the families and for the kids that can now enjoy these streets in a way that they couldn't before. And so yeah, the traffic calming is a huge part of that, putting in a lot of speed lumps on these streets as well as doing some things with striping and plantings to to really visually narrow the streets and slow everybody down. Um, And that's something that, uh, you know, we hear about a lot when we went through the Great Streets planning process. That was, you know, we we heard uh, about the major arterials, but we heard a lot about the the folks that said, my street, the street I live on with my family what are you going to do about that street? And um, it's, yeah, definitely not the part that gets the most attention. Uh, it's not as controversial, but it's really important. Yeah, yeah. Just out of curiosity, or what's what's the inventory of uh, sidewalks like on in some of those neighborhood streets? You know, I, I it's it's a mix. We're working on one area of our city right now that hasn't ever had sidewalks, which is astonishing. Uh, it's a mile from the downtown core and it has never had sidewalks. And so, you know, you have a lot of those streets that have never had the investment or haven't had it for over 50 years, really since, since world war two, uh, when we started to see a lot of disinvestment in, in our neighborhoods. And so that's, you know, a part of the great streets plan too, is, is making sure that we have, uh, safe and accessible sidewalks. And so anytime we're making investments on these streets, we're, we're making those upgrades at the same time. We're making sure all the routes are ADA accessible, that we have the right ramps, that the crosswalks are there and all of those sorts of great things that we like to see. Yeah. I'm finding that it's it's quite common, especially in really, really old cities where, uh, again, <laughs> they, they existed prior to the automobile. And then also in the neighborhoods that were immediately post-World War II and, and, and like the neighborhood that we're in here, uh, you know, it was platted just before World War II, but then it wasn't really built out until immediately after the war. And to to paraphrase, you know, Chuck Marone with Strong Towns, it's like the part of the reason why a lot of those those neighborhoods were built without sidewalks is because it they just didn't have the money. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until the economy really started to to take off in the 1950s and into the 1960s where you started to see the you know, proliferation of the suburbs and you started to see sidewalks being sort of included in that model of how they were doing it. But, uh, you know, our, our neighborhood is, you know, every street is essentially a relatively narrow shared street. And uh, and we'll probably never really have a, a vast network of sidewalks here, um, and partly because a lot of the the beautiful street trees that we have in the neighborhood happen to be right there in that right, right of way where, the, sidewalk would be, where yeah. the sidewalks would be. And if you know, if you ask the community what they want to give up or what you know what they want to see, they'd say we'd rather our streets be traffic calmed. 
and have the motor vehicles traveling slower. And one of the things that we saw in during the pandemic is that, you know, the number of people walking and biking in the middle of the street, you know, increased tenfold you know, calming the traffic down even more so. So it, it's, I, I always love to ask that question uh, to, to get a sense as to, you know, what those streets are like and, you know, if there's if there's sidewalks out there and how people are behaving. Uh, so yeah, let me pose that question to you. Did you see a change during the lockdown, during the pandemic in terms of of people out on the street and and, and what that relationship of, of the Providence residents to the streetscape was? We did. I think like a lot of other cities, you know, people in, in the early spring of last year, after being inside for just a few weeks, were so eager to, to get out of their house. And we saw a lot of folks walking and biking, using our trail system, using our parks. And um, we went through a similar thing that uh, a lot of other cities did, where we launched a slow streets program where we temporarily, temporarily partially closed a lot of our streets throughout the city. I think we had maybe 18 miles or so of slow streets that we introduced. Uh, and they, those lasted through last spring and into the summer. A lot of those are the streets that are actually going to become our neighborhood greenways now. So it was a good little test case for us to where we were able to put out relatively cheaply so, some barricades, some signage, and just kind of let people do their thing. You know, we had some amazing things happen of, um, you know, just neighbors meeting each other. We had over on one of the streets, we had a, a little impromptu band that was set up out on the street to entertain their neighbors. And it was a really beautiful time for a lot of reasons. And uh, it built a lot of momentum for some of the more permanent changes to come to these streets that we're, we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks. Now, one of the other cultural shift things that uh, that took place as part of the big jump or in, in concert with the big jump, maybe it wasn't part of the big jump, but it was certainly happening at the same time, was the launch of Bike Share. And, and, and as I recall, since you said it was hilly, that makes more sense that you guys had uh, electric assist bike share. Yeah. Ar around the time big jump launched, one of our, one of our goals was to get bike share launched in the city. We did that. We brought jump on board and had a great partnership with them for, for a while there. We had one of the higher, highest ridership systems outside of California, which is, is pretty great considering that it's uh, very, very hot here in the summer and very, very cold and snowy in the winter. And so your your shoulder season isn't, isn't great, but, you know, they they were really impressed what they saw here. We, they expanded really quickly and uh, having the e-bikes was, was very helpful for the terrain of our city. And unfortunately, when uh, Uber bought out uh, bought out Jump, uh, they just, or when Uber sold Jump, I'm sorry, when Uber sold Jump there just, what was it, two years ago, they decided they weren't going to um, continue their partnership with the city of Providence, which was really unfortunate. And so it's been a sad two years without bike share. But just about a month ago, we relaunched a, a bike share system with Spin, who has been permitted to have scooters here in the city. They branched out to e-bikes now, and they're, I think they have about 100 on the streets now. We're launching a few more over the summer, building up to about 400 in the fall. And it's really great to see them out there again. Uh, people really clearly enjoyed using bike share. Uh, it was it was very evident, and a lot of people were so sad when it went away, and a lot of people were relying on it, you know, to get to and from work or other places they had to go. 
and so, you know, that was, it was a sad time, but we're, we're happy to be on the other side of it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that's great to, to great to hear that, uh, you're getting, um, that opportunity to get him, get them back out onto the street. And it sounds like it's going to be a good proof of concept for the e-bike for spin. Um, and so it seems like that's a good partnership, uh, of being able to have both the, the e-scooters out there on the streets, as well as an electric assist bike, uh, as part of that network. And it sounds like it's going to be a similar type of platform in terms of a dockless type of system. And then you just kind of work on the, the management of, you know, said dockless micro mobility devices to make sure that uh, it, it fits in well with the, the vision of the city. That's gr- good stuff. Hey, Martina, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet, you know, in, in terms of the, the stuff that's that's happening right now or is going to be happening uh, that you want to make sure that we mention? Yeah, I think, you know, it would be good to, to chat a little bit about some of the, the zoning work and the housing work that our team works on, too, because, uh, you know, the housing and, and zoning, uh, anti-displacement work and sort of the built form of our, our cities is such an important part of the conversation. You know, we can change our streets and we should be changing our streets, but if we're not uh, approaching it from all of these other angles as well, uh, I think that's a really missed opportunity. And so, uh, you know, our team, uh, the special projects team here in the city of Providence has been really fortunate that we're able to work on all of those things simultaneously and help put some of the, the puzzle pieces together a little bit. What are the biggest challenges that you have from, from that perspective? I'm, I'm assuming that your challenges are a little bit different than, say, like the city of Austin, where we're, you know, trying to do a, a, a zone rewrite and zoning plan, you know, code rewrite. Uh, the fact that you are as dense as you are, uh, what are some of the challenges that you're dealing with from 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 that perspective? Well, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of pressure uh, on housing and a lot of uh, huge need for affordable housing. I don't think that's that's too different than many other cities throughout the country. Especially a city like, you know, if you're looking at similar densities, especially to like a a city like uh, San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much space to go. There's no there's nowhere else to expand to. We're not annexing additional lands to incorporate into the city. Uh, It is what it is. And uh, our borders are our borders. And a lot of the land is built out. And so accommodating that additional density even though we're, we are already very dense, has been a huge point of contention with a lot of neighborhoods that say, you know, that's enough. We don't want any more density. We don't want any affordable housing in our neighborhood. We uh, don't want any student housing in our neighborhood. And so there's only, there's only so many places those things can go. And, uh, you know, that's been a huge challenge with us to, for us to address with both our zoning ordinance and our housing policy of where, where does the growth go when you are, are that limited? Right, right. So it sounds like you're you're dealing with many of the same challenges. It may be a different stripe, but it's still, you know, the resistance from, you know, folks that, you know, maybe don't completely understand or appreciate the challenge that, that y'all are facing uh, or just that, you know, because as you mentioned earlier, it's change is fearful and fear inducing. 
It is. Yeah. Ch- change is hard. Certainly Providence historically was before a lot of people that live here now remember was a much more dense city, uh, you know, leading up to World War II and a little bit after World War II until a lot of the industry really moved out. We were m- much even more dense than we are right now. And the population was much higher. Um, and so it's sort of in a way trying to get back to that a little bit. But, you know, there, there are a lot of newer challenges like the student housing issue that, uh, you know, as the colleges, uh, which are such an important part of our city, continue to grow and expand, um, there's this huge need for student housing in our neighborhoods. And there's a lot of pressure there between uh, family housing, affordable housing, student housing, and where all these things kind of come together. Yeah. And whenever we talk about affordability, I, I just always think back to, do we have a built environment that gives our uh, residents the ability to live a car light or a car free lifestyle? Because that really frees up a lot of resources and a lot of money. You know, do are you able to walk and bike? Are you able to easily access transit and take transit? You know, because that really takes a huge amount of burden you know, off of their shoulders from a household affordability perspective. It does. And and so often when folks talk about housing affordability, they, they're missing that other that other part of the equation of the costs that go into owning and maintaining one or two cars per household. Um, so, you know, I think combined those two things, you know, we have to obviously think about creating more affordable housing in the city and maintaining affordability levels for existing residents so they aren't pushed out. But we also need to make it easier for folks that don't either either want to make that choice they, they want to decide to to live a car free or a car light life or in in providence here in a lot of our neighborhoods it's folks don't even have that choice they they cannot own a car and they are already reliant on walking biking or taking the bus and they're so often ignored or not thought of when we think about planning for transportation so, you know, it's, it's been really interesting to be able to see both sides of it. So for those people who are listening in are inspired by this story that Providence is going through and your experience of, uh, of, of sort of being there for the number of years that you have and, and especially lately, you know, getting really excited about the things that are happening for those people who are inspired by this story. What advice would you have for them if they would like to make change in their neighborhoods and on their street? I think uh, don't be discouraged uh, is number one. I think, you know, I... The number of times I've heard the word no over my 12 years here at the city is, and if I, if I stopped, if I, if I walked away after the first no, I, I, we wouldn't have gotten any of the things that we've gotten done. But it was just the persistence of figuring out, okay, if it's not going to work that way, what are, what's another way that we can get there? Um, and the, you know, the other piece of advice I would have is to build a, a wide advocacy base, really branch out 
beyond your traditional group that you might you might work with. You know, here um, our our bicycle advocacy community w- was very was wasn't very diverse. You know, it was really sort of what you think of when you think of traditional bicycle advocates. And so much of the work that we've been doing with the advocacy community over the past few years has been diversifying that and broadening that out to talk to the skateboarding community, to talk to people that are, are um, ADA advocates and really uh, building alliances there because you're, once you have a stronger base like that, it's going to be a lot easier to get things done than when you're so narrowly focused on one thing like just biking or just walking. Right, right. Such great advice. It's a very broad tent. It's, it's all about in the spirit of creating great streets and a city for people. And that's, that's just so beautiful. Martina, thank you so very much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Active Towns podcast. All right. Thanks, John. It's been great. Good to see you again. Hopefully we'll get you up here to Providence soon. Soon. So <laughs> wait, you, you, you had mentioned something happening in the spring, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in the spring, a lot of our construction projects that are happening this summer will be back back online after uh, a gloomy winter uh, here in New England. And uh, that, that'll be a great time to come, uh, come see everything in its glory. Fantastic. Very good. Well, we'll have to uh, organize uh, an Active Towns uh, tour trip to be there for uh, maybe one of the ribbon cuttings. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 84 of the Active Towns podcast. I can't wait to visit Providence to help profile and celebrate the hard work that Martina and the rest of the city staff and leaders have put in over the years to transform the built environment into one that supports active living and active mobility for all ages and abilities. Take it from a city that was founded in 1636. Even if it's etched in stone and poured in concrete, things can change. So be persistent and keep pushing forward for healthier, more sustainable places in your communities. I've included a bunch of relevant links in the show notes, as well as some photos out on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. And one last reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote a culture of activity, please help me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue to produce this content. I've made doing so super easy. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to activetowns.org and click on the bright blue donate button or navigate to the fundraising page. Thank you so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.